Welcome to another episode of the Recruitment Mentors Podcast. My name is Hisha Mazuz, and this is a show where I sit down with high-achieving and inspirational recruitment professionals across the globe. It's my job to deconstruct how they have accelerated their recruitment career and remained at the top of their game by uncovering their daily habits, mindset, approach to leadership, and much, much more. Before you enjoy this episode... I wanted to not shout out any particular individuals this week. I wanted to shout out to all of you that listen and support this podcast, especially for those of you that listen to this podcast on Spotify. For those of you that listen to music on Spotify, may or may not have seen that they do this really cool thing at the end of the year where they wrap up your most popular songs, your most popular artists, and they also give you some really cool data on your most listened to podcasts and these things and as I host a podcast I also get a sort of wrapped version of having a podcast and sort of where the podcast has grown and uh, who's listened to it and these things and one of the stats that come through which just completely amazed me was that the recruitment mentors podcast was the 40th most popular business podcast that was listened to in the UK. There are millions of podcasts on Spotify alone. So that is a pretty cool and amazing stat that came through. And that would not be possible without all of you guys and gals that support this podcast. So I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you. A huge thank you to all of you that support this show that listen to it, that talk about it, that share it with your colleagues, it all helps. I have every intention of continuing to level up this podcast, give you more and more value through the stories that people share on this podcast. So thank you so much for being on this journey with me. And this week, it's an absolute cracker. Here is what's in store. Back in those days, there was news of the world and you'd you'd often see little adverts on the tube or wherever will pay for stories. So I was like, okay, maybe I can make some money out of this, right? So I call up news of the world. And I call up a few of the newspapers and I go, look, I've got this story. How much would you pay me? News of the world go 10 grand. And absolutely how you'd imagine a news of the world reporter to look, right? I'm just saying stereotypically, goes, Mike, look, we're, we're going to run this story that you lost X amount of uh, 60 million quid on Monday night or whatever it, whatever night it was. And we're going to run it on Sunday. And Mike actually just turns around and goes, no, that's not true. I lost 120 million quid because I had the same bet on with someone else. So, uh, a firm, same bet with a different firm. So anyways, this story ran. It was a double page spread, which I've still got. I've still got it in my house. And they paid me 10 grand. And I used that money to start the business that way. This podcast has evolved and is now called Recruitment Mentors. This is due to the new business I'm launching called Recruitment Mentors. Why am I launching this business? This has come from the complete belief that if you have the inner ambition and drive to become the best recruiter you can be, then you shouldn't be limited or prevented by barriers that sit outside of your control. 
If that's working for an organization that simply doesn't make enough money to invest in learning development, if that's working for a manager who you learn most from, but you're limited by the time that they can give you. For no fault of your own, you might end up in an environment in a recruitment agency that has no appetite to invest in learning and development. This community is built to help you accelerate your recruitment career without limits. This place is not about egos. This community is about giving you access to some of the best recruitment professionals outside of your four walls that you can learn from, whilst connecting you with like-minded recruitment consultants focused on growth. If you want to be part of this community and progress your career without limits, then make sure you sign yourself up to our waiting list and to be informed of our soft launch in December. You can find the link to the waiting list in the episode show notes. I'd love to see you there. Come join us and be part of the first dedicated community for recruitment professionals focused on growth. That's enough from me. Now back to the podcast. Welcome to the Recruitment Mentors Podcast. My name is Hisham Azuz. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Farouk Mohammed, who is one of the co-founders of Digital Gurus. And in 2016, they sold this business to the Rethink Group, which is now on the board of. Um, and this group consists of four recruitment brands, including Digital Gurus, generating over £150 million in turnover. They employ over 100 staff within the group. And Farouk started Digital Gurus during the financial crisis in 2008 with two business partners. And in the last 12 years, has grown this business to 80 plus staff, turning over 54 million pounds, a net fee income of 12 million pounds. And in this actual business, DG now operates in London, Manchester, Sydney, and Dubai. Farouk, welcome. Good to be here. Thanks, Hisham. So, as I was saying, where I always like to start, in your opinion, what characteristics and traits do you think make up a highly successful recruitment consultant? Uh, so I really thought about this and I thought over my uh, career of interviewing recruiters as well. And I've, I've interviewed over, uh, last count, it was over 1,500 people uh, for recruitment consultant positions within DG, right? So there's been a lot. And it was always the core things that we looked for. Um, there were some bonuses on top, but the core things that we always looked for was hunger and drive, which you can probably bunch up together, uh, a willingness to learn and humility and ambition. And the reason it was those things was because we couldn't teach them. We could teach market sector specific knowledge. We could teach how to go and find a good CV. We could teach how to network. We could teach how to um, do a Boolean search. We could teach how to go in, find a customer, but we couldn't teach those core values. So let me just relate to them. Hunger and drive. Obviously, we wanted people who wanted to really push themselves because when you're when you're in recruitment, the business that we built was one that was less cracking the whip and more self-motivation. So we wanted more of the carrot than the stick. And what that meant is that you had to be self-motivated. You had to be able to go, right, what am I wanting to achieve for myself? What is it that I'm driving towards? The company will give you the infrastructure, but without that 
hunger and ambition, that willing willingness to win, there wasn't a lot that we could do for you. There, there would only be a certain amount. And I believe this, there's only a certain amount that the stick could even get you to. Now, right, how many calls have you made today? How many customers have you spoken to? After a while, that becomes repetitive and boring. If you've got that willingness to win, that ambition to learn, that ambition to push yourself, that will just keep going indefinitely. That was a core value that we looked at. The other, the th- other thing that I mentioned was humility and willingness to learn, right? Unless you are willing to listen to people that have been in the trenches before, that tell you to do it in a certain way, that you're able to go, actually, let me try and do it that way. Let me try and experiment in a different way to what I think it should be. Then you're going to struggle. Um, if you if you have that ability to go, I'm not an expert in this area, or let me try it in this different way, or let me experiment, you're going to end up being far better than you would if you didn't. So those mm-hmm. were some of the key criteria for us. It was always the same thing. Now, like the 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 whole, you could always go to should you hire experience or non-experience, right? And my answer to that is that you, if you don't have those core qualities in the experience, people, it doesn't matter. You have to have those core qualities, whether you're inexperienced or an experience. So if I was hiring a recruiter, 10 years worth of experience in recruitment, didn't have those core qualities or I felt they didn't have those core qualities, we wouldn't hire them. Yeah, so that's the sense? recipe that you always look for. Yeah, the key, the key parts of the recipe, yeah. I, really I've never met, honestly, I've never met anyone who'd set their career goal as being a recruiter. So therefore, most people who come into this industry have come in it without meaning to come into it. And they need to have some core key characteristics. That means that everyone's learned the skill of being able to do recruitment. So they must have had some core key skills. And for me, those are the key ingredients. Yeah. Interesting. Well, hopefully recruitment is becoming a bit of a career choice for you. I'd like to think that it's changing. That's slightly changing. And I think there is definitely more people that want to get into the industry, but really interesting insights. So a lot to uncover here. You've been on a long journey. Where I want to start when doing my preparation for this, we've got to start with this Mike Ashley story. We just have to start with it. Right. So to give some context and, and correct me if I'm wrong, from what I learned about you through, because you worked in recruitment for a year and a half and you and your two business partners started to think about, we can do this better than the business that we're in and started to formulate digital gurus in a shisha lounge uh, on a weekly basis, talking about what we're going to do, what you can do better. So you had that, that I guess that naiveness to be like, no, we can definitely do this. Right. And just that hunger to, to make things happen. And from what I heard you talk about this before is that you decided all three of you that to kickstart this journey, you need 10 grand each. That's, that's what you need to, to, to buy in to start this. So why don't you share how you got that 10 grand? Cause I know you didn't have it, but you found a way to yeah. get it. So why don't we start that and how yeah. Digital Guru started? Absolutely. So I didn't have the money and I was like, right, where am I going to get this money from? And this was sort of like in the back of my mind, Anyways, I, I used to live with uh, a bunch of mates. So, uh, one of my mates worked for a large spread betting firm. And he comes home one night and uh, he just goes, oh, you'll never guess what. Mike Ashley lost 60 million quid last night uh, making a bet. I can't remember exactly what a bet was, but he lost it. And I was just like, all right, okay. Back in those days there was news of the world and you'd you'd often see little adverts on the tube or wherever will pay for stories. 
So I was like, okay, maybe I can make some money out of this, right? Obviously betraying one of my friends' trust, totally like stepping over the line, but, but needs must at this stage. And he still to this day doesn't know. He still to this day doesn't know. And uh, so I call up News of the World. And I call up a few of the newspapers and I go, look, I've got this story. How much would you pay me? News of the World go 10 grand. They must have known rounded numbers work, right? So they say 10 grand. And uh, I, uh, I I arranged to meet this reporter. And he arranges to meet me in this hotel on like on the Thames in Water, near Waterloo, on the Thames. I remember this hotel was in it. And it was like dimly lit and I walked in there and it was absolutely how you'd imagine a News of the World reporter to look, right? I'm just saying stereotypically, I'm not saying it all look the same, but this is how I imagine that person to look. And he looked exactly like it. Shiny suit, slip back hair, the whole works. And he sits down and he goes, right, so tell me the story. Told him the story. Tell me how you know. Told him all of that. And he's like, well, we have to verify this story. We have to call up Mike Ashley. So he... Um, he just calls him up. He like, you know, he calls up this this secretary or something like that. Anyway, he gets through to Mike Ashley and uh, goes, Mike, look, we're we're going to run this story that you lost X amount of uh, sixty million quid on Monday night or whatever it whatever night it was, and we're going to run it on Sunday. And Mike Ashley just turns around and goes, No, that's not true. I lost one hundred twenty million quid because I had the same bet on with someone else, a firm, same same bet with a different firm. So anyways, this story ran. It was a double page spread, which I've still got. I've still got it in my house. And they paid me 10 grand. And I used that money to start the business up with. So uh, literally about two weeks later, we, we started the business because I, I went to the guys and I went, look, I've got 10 grand. So I've got my share. I have no idea um, where they got their share, but that's how I got my money. I sold it to my best friend. <laughs> absolutely best unbelievable, friend that story. Yeah. <laughs> so... And, uh, Actually, yeah, yeah. I had to get you to share that. I, I just thought when I first heard you talk about that, I was like, that is just, that is mental. Um, but I think that says, I think that says a lot about the type of, like you clearly someone that make, make shit happen clearly from, from what, when I've heard you talk about your journey and you take action. Um, I think, um, I think it was an opportunity and it was something that we really wanted to do and an opportunity came about and, and we took it. I, I, you know, ethically, was it right? Uh, I probably am not 100% sure if it was totally right, but uh, it, it was an opportunity that had to be taken at that time. And you know what? It worked out. <laughs> so to start a digital gurus, you and your two business partners, right? Yeah, yeah. Haven't got a whole lot of recruitment experience. How, how much experience did your business partners have at this point? Uh, one of them had eight months. And one right. of them had around two and a half years. And okay. uh, what was funny is that we thought that was enough. And do you know what? It might have actually been enough in terms of recruitment experience. But what it what we didn't have was any experience of how to run a business. Run a business, yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's a complete <laughs> different skill set. And we, we realized that relatively quickly. So what I heard you talk about which I found really interesting, and I don't know how common this was when you started this in 2008, was that I heard you talk about that in the first two years of you starting Digital Gurus, like what you decided to do and take your own initiative on was like pick the brains of experts and ask as many people as possible for advice. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It was really, really Why important. Why that? Because, so like, like I said, we didn't, have any, we didn't have any experience of how to run a business at all. 
So we started to reach out to people that one that we saw as competitors um, and two that we thought we'd want to um, be able to network with them, learn from them and whatnot. We never saw it as a way of that, oh, you can't speak to your competitors. For us, it was always a case that we should be talking to our competitors to learn about the market for that, for us to be able to learn off them and see what mistakes that, that they made potentially and if they were willing to share. So we reached out to a few larger companies back then. And you know what? Every single one came back to us and said, yeah, come down, let's have a conversation. Um, and we slowly over the next two years learned how they build their businesses, how we should build ours. We reached out to the experts. We made a ton of mistakes before we'd reached out to them. We were able to escalate our learning by reaching out to those sort of companies. And it was absolutely invaluable. It was really one of the key reasons we succeeded. And what what would you say were like, I don't know, the top one to to free? You may be asked this before, but like thinking about that and how valuable that was. Yeah. yeah, Top one to three things that people shared with you that you think really stuck and were really instrumental in how can um, you grow this part? As you can imagine, it was, it was all, a lot of it was around stuff that you wouldn't learn in recruitment sales. So it was like financials. How should you structure your financials? What sort of accountancy should you use? Should, how should you be leveraging off your invoices? So things like cash flow and scaling up. And then there was things like business plans. How do you strategically grow from three to 30? What what numbers, what metrics do you need to hit for your next hire? So one of the key things we we learned from reaching out to somebody was that they used a metric system where they'd be like, right, Every time we get these amount of things happening, so it might be interviews or jobs on um, and a conversion between them, we're going to hire somebody new. Every time we hit that metric, we're going to hire somebody new because that was their signal to say the market is big enough for you to go and try and attack it. They had a systematic way of doing that. So that was a real key thing. The other key thing was that we just didn't know how to grow our business using uh, cash flow. So we were just okay. funding it ourselves, right? And somebody came in, one of, one of the uh, guys that we were working with and said, no, you should be using this facility. So your perms should be paying for your contractors and your contractors should be paying for your perms. So just leverage the amount of invoices that you've got going out. We were just going, right, if we've got that much money coming in from perm, we'll use that to pay for our contractors instead of using both sides. It was mm. totally naive. Uh, so lessons like that. And ultimately, the other big thing that we learned was what type of culture it takes to succeed. What are people attracted to? You know, so I go in and go, right, what, why do people want to work for this particular firm? What is it about them? So little things like office design and brand and marketing in terms of their website. So I'll give a real example. When, when I went to one and they had a semi-decent site. I remember this is 2008. Recruitment agency websites in 2008 were horrific. So we were like, right, right. Our industry was digital design and technology. So we were like, right, why don't we design our website like a design agency? So it looks really slick, really professional. Because what we think that will do is convince candidates and customers that these guys know what they're talking about. Because look at their site. They look completely different to a recruitment agency website, totally. So we actually professionalized that 
we went to a design and branding agency, not a, like, oh, we specialize in recruitment. Now we went the other way. We said, we're going to go to a specialist that designed for products. And they designed our website and it blew out the market, completely changed our brand from a challenger to these guys are serious overnight. And what you saw over the next 12 months was every recruitment agency then changed their websites to match it, to try and catch up. So we had a huge edge in terms of candidate and customer perception just from branding. And that came from reaching out to other recruitment agencies to see how they were doing it. And the ones that we were sort of like trying to emulate, we noticed that their website tended to be better than the others. Uh, Mm. So we were like, right, let's try and blow them out of the water. So it was little things like that. Those were the key three learnings, I would say. That's really interesting. Definitely want to dig into you talking about your hiring triggers that you now know from like that's early on, right? But the hiring triggers are, are sort of non-negotiable for you now. But quickly on on branding, because yeah, I heard you talk about this before that you like like you're talking about that generally gave you an edge and and also led to where you ended up in terms of being seen by the businesses as a business to potentially buy or invest in, etc. Yeah. And I think if I don't know what your thoughts are on the landscape right now, but I think obviously the recruitment industry as a whole, marketing has become even more important. And you're talking this about in 2008, mm. right? Yeah. So, so there's still companies completely on the fence about this, investing in Martinese things. So I guess what I want to ask you was early on at that time, and maybe you can share what you sort of spend now, but like percentage wise, roughly, how much was you investing in marketing? Out of the money that you was putting we back into aggressive. the business, then. we were aggressive. We were aggressive with marketing. We were spending at least ten percent ourselves, um, and then then we were doing uh, sweat stuff as well, right? And what I mean by that is that there were loads of networking events that were going on that we we weren't uh, they weren't ours, right? So they were in our industry that people were running, and so we would approach those events and say we'd like to sponsor it. And we'd get like a discounted sponsorship. But what we used to do was ask them to say, if they said, pay us a grand a month to sponsor this, we'd say, we'll give you 500 quid, but the remaining will work for you on the night. So things like we'd be on the door, right? With the guest list. We did that strategically because we knew that people, letting people in, we'd get to meet them face to face. Yeah, We'd get to know them. We'd introduce ourselves. And whilst we're doing a favor for the event, it was also raising our brand awareness. So we were strategically doing guerrilla marketing and really trying to get our brand out there. I would say that you have to be famous for something. You have to be unique. And it's like anything, like think about a shop that you want to shop at. If you went onto their website and it looked slightly tatty, you'd start to think, should I be giving my money to this business? Is the product going to arrive? All the things that are associated with that. So for me to really stand out in the marketplace now and in the future is that you've got to be, you've got to look slick. Your website's got to look slick. Your message has got to look slick. Your, um, the way that you present yourself to the marketplace, candidates and customers has to be spot on. You've got to be famous for something. Now, I think that the market has evolved from being generalist into being specialist. And mm. the more you are known for something, and I've, and I've heard a couple of people on this podcast talk about this, and I totally agree. The more you're known for something, being famous for something, the better you'll become. And that, if you think of it from a candidate's perception, what do candidates hate about recruitment agencies? They hate that they don't know what they're talking about. They hate that they are never got back to. 
and they feel like they're just a piece of transaction for them. They don't feel like they're getting value. If you can convince the candidate, which is the core part of a recruitment process, is the candidate, is to go, right, I've got uh, your interest at heart. Uh, I know what I'm talking about because look how much I invest in my product and myself in the way that I present myself to my customers. Um, I'm going to treat you like the most important thing in the world. You're going to differentiate yourself from the rest of the marketplace because mm. even now to, to this day, we just don't do that. The way that I look about the recruitment industry is that we should treat it more like the sports industry treat their um, stars. So like, for example, the sports agency market will work with a certain amount of candidates and they'll go and mm -hmm. present them to the marketplace. If I was in recruitment now in a specialist vertical, I'd say, right, I'm only going to deal with the top four in that industry. Every single month, I'm going to deal with top four. Don't know who they are, but I'm going to deal with the top four. I'm going to find them and I'm going to work only with them. And I'm going to tell them that I'm going to put their, them at the center of it. I'm going to use my brand. I'm going to use my um, knowledge of the market to take them to market, to get them the best uh, um, job for them, the way the sports industry does. And then what will happen is over a year, you're working with 48 to 50. If you're in, in on the perm side of the market, you're working with 48 to 50 and your brand and network just becomes bigger and bigger because you're able to specialize. That for me is the way that the market should be rather than generalist. So you've shared, so you've shared some of the things that you learn from people's advice and, and then you've taken action on branding marketing. What went really wrong for you in the first couple of years? Digital gurus, where, where did you go wrong? What mistake? People uh, want to know the mistakes you've made for it. What, what mistakes? Yeah, the, mistakes that we made, the mistakes that we made was that we didn't get the right sort of professionals to help us. We thought that we could do it all ourselves, right? So, what I mean by that is that we went cheap on things like uh, financing or accounting, right? Typically, what I see is that. When companies set up their recruitment agency, they'll go, right, I'll use my mate's accountant or my dad's accountant or somebody in my network's accountant, rather than going, do you know what? I'll spend a bit more, but it will save me tons in the short, medium and long term. And what I mean by that is that we had my dad's accountant, wrong VAT returns, late VAT returns, just little things like that. And they all add up, right? Because in recruitment, it is a specialist industry the volume can increase really, really quickly, especially if you've got a contract book. You need specialists. So we should have outsourced more to specialists that knew our market and we would have saved tons of money. Uh, we would have grown quicker. We wouldn't have got fined. The other thing that we should have done is that we should have had more um, specialist advice from non-exec directors earlier. We did get one. We got one after a few years and it really was, I think it was critical in us getting to a sale. But again, it was that naivety and that arrogance, I would say, to go, oh, now we know what we're doing. We'll scale it up. And and that just put us back a couple of years, if I'm really honest. Yeah. Just on that, I had, I had a question come through, and I think this is – I sometimes get asked because of the network I have, do you know any good NEDs, right? So I guess the journey that you've been on now, you you can look in a bit um, – look back on this, but like – any advice for people, business owners listening to this that do want to find the right NED? Because there are a lot of people that haven't walked mm. the walk or say that they can help with something, but they can't or whatever, right? So I guess you just said that it was pivotal. So like if, I, if, I'm, if I'm asking you for as a recruitment business owner, like what would you encourage me to look for? Because it's personal to me and my business, but what would you say yeah. be the non-negotiables when considering an NED for my recruitment business? 
because you've got to get on with them. That's the first non-negotiable. Um, and you've got to be able to... The other non-negotiable that I would say would be that you've got to be able to have really um, difficult conversations. Uh, and if you're not able to do that, as in that trust factor isn't there, then there's no, they're not going to really add value. So again, it comes down to the key criteria of how you hire recruitment agencies. You've got to have humbleness about you. You've got to be able to have a willingness to learn. And if you're able to do that, they will absolutely add value to it. They will scale your, your business up a lot, lot quicker than you would be able to do yourself because they'll stop you making mistakes. You know, they'll absolutely introduce you to experts that will help you scale your marketplace. I can tell you without doubt, without our non-exec, we wouldn't have been able to scale that business and sell it at the time that we were. It, we might have been able to do it eventually, but not in a timing wise that we did it in. Um, because they stopped us or they eliminated mistakes that we were making that we weren't even aware of. And they were able to introduce us to people that were able to scale our business up a lot quicker on the professional side. Yeah. So, for so, me, so it's not even just them, the individual, it's actually you then get access to their network, right? Because it's in their, their interest. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So just on, on the first part there of mistake, really interesting and probably a common one, like what, looking back now, like what do you think has been the most important hire of all, the glue that's really enabled the business to push forward? If that's a sales director, an ops director, people manager, like what do you think has been like an absolutely, like someone maybe you could have got in the business earlier that you think could have made an even more of a difference? What would you say? Uh, I think um, a sales director in the business earlier would have made a huge difference um, in terms of scaling the business up. I think that would have been a critical hire. But I would say, honestly, the critical hire was, uh, I'm loath to say this in a recruitment business, but it was an accountant. It was sorting <laughs> out, it was sorting out all of the... Um, all of the mess that salespeople do because we're not experts at that. We don't really want to take care of that stuff. We want to do the exciting stuff of selling and making money and making a difference in people's lives. That's what we're brilliant at. And that's what we want to do. And I think the critical hire was, um, there was a few actually the marketing director because they helped us uh, explore, explode our brand and really take us onto the next level. It's very difficult to say that one particular salesperson was critical I would honestly say that every single hire that comes through the door from the sales side is critical because they add to your mm -hmm. brand, they add to your network, they add to your sales numbers. Um, it's very difficult to, to separate somebody out. But in terms of one of the things that you mentioned earlier around mistakes as well, I think one of the mistakes that we did make was that we didn't ourselves hiring somebody once the business reached a certain size to run it. And we should have stepped away more ourselves. We were hands-on for too long. So I think mm. a sales director, a managing director could have taken a business on even faster, even quicker. I think that would have been yeah. important. Okay. So you've spoken quite a bit around early on in DG. So keen to dig into like leading up to selling to rethink stuff like that. I know a lot of people are keen to hear about this. So just final thing around this. There are, as, as I'm sure you're aware, the large majority of the recruitment industry is made up of, of small micro recruitment businesses, mm -hmm. right? So there'll be a lot of recruitment business owners listening who are at that 10 head mark or 20 head mark, right? And I'm sure a lot of people 
seek your advice, but who are at that. So I guess what, like if they're listening right now and they're at that stage of their business and they do want to scale, that's obviously important mm-hmm. that they do want that. They know that. What would your advice be to them if that's where they're at in their journey? Let me just break that statement up for a second, right? So there's two reasons uh, that um, recruitment companies start up. One is either for a lifestyle um, because you want to have a better lifestyle and you want to run it in that way. Or two, you have a really clear mindset that you want to scale up a business and sell it. And the two don't often combine because if you're running as a lifestyle business, you're taking more money out of the business. If you're scaling up and building it to sell it, you're putting more money back into the business. So for those who want to sell their business, this is really important to know. If you are doing 1 million quid profit and uh, and plus, you will have one to two checks chasing you. If you're doing 2 million and above, you'll have eight to 10 checks chasing you. Uh, in profit. So it's really important to know that massive difference. If you're doing 1 million and below, unless you are super strategic in a niche area that a business wants, they're not going to come and look at you. Right? So you really got to focus in that profit line. That's the thing. That's that's the key differentiator in terms of acquisition. In terms of scaling up, you've got to be able to look at your marketplace and go, right, in this marketplace, how much is there that we can um, scale up in terms of headcount? What are our metrics that we're looking at? And it could be jobs on. It could be interviews to jobs on and the two interlink. Um, it could be uh, sales. How much sales are we doing before we bring our next person on? It could be how much percentage margin are we doing in profit? So if we're selling a million quid and we're putting 10% of that on the bottom line, so 100,000, do we want to increase that or do we want to put that back in the business? what are the metrics that we're looking at? So for me, we always drove it really, really simply on, we want to hit a certain amount of profit. We want to hit this conversion rate on our profit. So we used to look at how many, uh, how much jobs are in that area that we're getting through monthly, how much interviews does that convert to before we'd hire our next one, two, three, four hires based on that data. So we'd always run it data-led. For those mm. businesses that are out there right now going, right, should I hire another person? Should I look at another two people? Should I look at another three people? You've got to break down your market. How many jobs on have you had in that market in the last couple of months? How many jobs do you think you've missed out? And it's a bit of a finger in the air exercise. How many jobs do you think you've missed out on? How many, uh, what does the market say in terms of growth over the next year, two years? And you can find this data online. For example, if you're in a marketplace like AI, what does the market growth look like over the next five years in terms of percentage growth? Anything over 5% growth in that marketplace year on year, you should be investing. You should be looking to invest because that market will accommodate that extra person. The organic growth will accommodate that extra person. So that's what I'd look for. So if you're a business right now and you're like, right, I want to sell my business. And you've had a couple of speakers before whose ambition is to sell it. The magic number that they're looking for without them being totally strategic, as in they're a specialist in a certain area, is 1 million plus minimum. For those that want a deal guaranteed on the best terms, 2 million EBITDA. Interesting. And just really quickly, I've had a couple of people, can you, (laughs) like some people have messaged me before, like 
Hisham, like what, what when they say NFI and net fee income, EBITDA, like what, what do they mean? Can you just, just do that in layman's yeah. terms for people? So, do you know what I mean? Because I think that's beneficial NFI, for people. NFI is operating profit. So in recruitment, um, where you have turnover as well, because you've got contractors in, in, in a lot of them, it's what you're left over once you've paid all your contractors. So it's your sales number once you've paid all your contractors. So, for example, you might have 100 million in turnover, but once you've paid your contractors, you've got 10 million left over. NFI is that 10 million, also known as operating profit, also known as sales. EBITDA is once you've paid all your staff, once you've paid all your costs, what's left at the end of the month before tax, right? Uh, and depreciation, effectively. Yeah, and that's typically and, what's used to value businesses and everything else, isn't it, that figure? Yeah, it's, it's slowly changing in the industry, but in recruitment, it's usually usually four to seven times in transactional recruitment. RPO is slightly higher. RPO is usually mm-hmm. six to ten. So it's a wait, multiplier. Wait, wait. So what, what, wait, what, do you mean, what do you mean by that? Sorry, just to be really clear on that. So it's a multiplier example, on, on what you're making and what you could yeah, get yourself so on. If your profit in a year is a million quid, um, usually in transactional businesses, so the ones that like, right, um, we do this market, we charge 15%, and it's just every time you fill a job, you get a certain yeah. amount of yeah. money. That's transactional. Uh, usually they go at five times multiple. So if you did a million quid, somebody makes an offer your business is probably going to go for five million quid right if it's five times multiple whereas in rpo because they are multi-year contracts they go for more so they'll be like right we did a million quid same amount of profit but they'll go for six million if it's a six time multiple yeah okay got that so fruit you sold this business to the rethink group and digital gurus became part of the rethink group in 2016 so like how far out from the exit or from that sale, because obviously you're still involved, sorry, so maybe not the right terminology, but how far out from that sale do you start planning the process and what was the most difficult part in that practice to, to get there, would you say? Oh, right. In terms of how far out, from day one, straight up, we had a real clean idea that we were going to build this business to sell it. Um, from day one, it was there was no way we weren't interested in lifestyle. We weren't interested in taking any money out. We were like, we are going to build this business and we're going to sell it. And it was a real key strategic thing. And I would say to any business um, entrepreneurs that are looking to scale up their business or looking to start a business or looking to sell their business, you've got to have a really clear idea that you want to sell the business because it will determine your decisions. So that was the first thing. The the, the, in terms of when we were going to sell to Rethink, we knew maybe we knew we were going to sell the business probably a year before we definitively were like, right, in the next year we're going to sell this because we had multiple parties that we were talking to, private equity, other options that were on the table. Um, and and just actual- on that quickly, Rick, sorry to sorry to button, but a few people, I think, a few people are interested in this. Like, how did that actually come about? Did you proactively look for it? Did I don't know. Did you give the potential business proposition to someone and they broke it out to their network? Like, I think yeah, people were interested. Like, how did? That, yeah. Great question. Like I said, network. It came from our non-exec. It came mm. from our non-exec. Um, and what you'll find is once you've got a certain brand and uh, a certain amount of profit, the market becomes aware of it, and the market will come to you. I would encourage those that are really focused on selling is to not proactively go to market because you'll tend to find that you'll get a better offer coming to you 
There's mm. loads of agents. Well, you, out you've there. got leverage then straight away, haven't you? You've got leverage straight totally. away. Totally. It's like anything. Like you look, we all work in sales. We know what works. It's like um, you'll have loads of agents. You'll have companies that are listening right now that'll have agents approaching them saying, "Oh yeah, come on, we, we we've got interested parties in your company, and we'll take it out to market, and they'll charge you a price to do that." But most of the time that's not going to go anywhere. So if you're going to negotiate those types of deals, don't pay any cash up front and say, we'll give you a higher percentage on sale. If you get the right network involved, and I'm telling you, there's plenty of companies out there sitting there looking at the marketplace, looking at who's doing what profit, looking at their areas of strategic weakness where they go to the market and go, right, we, we need this area. They'll be aware of your brand and it will come to you. Uh, and your uh, your advisors as well will be well aware of what the marketplace is doing and we'll be able to introduce you to the right places as well. So a great question and it's important to, for, yeah. for people to understand that. The, so I think, the, thing, I, go on. Go on. the thing that I'd be aware of with certain things like that though, it takes a lot longer than you'd realize in terms of the actual act of oh, selling. It, it is long and you are, you you as how long a did it take leader, you? How long did you think it was going to take, and how long did it take? I thought it would take us. I thought it would take us maybe three months, um, and it took us from start to finish a year, I would say. Okay. Uh, and it was full dedication. So I, I basically started to just focus in on that. So it took me away from business and any potential com- um, companies that are thinking about that. You need to be fully aware that it's going to take you away from your day to day activities, and you need to be able to do that. And to be honest, if you're not able, if your business is not able to function without you being able to take a step away from it anyway, you're not ready to sell. So mm. it should be able to survive without you. Yeah. So, so this is my sort of question. I think this is it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on this because I think this is the part that I don't think. I think that it's sort of a grey area, right? And there isn't complete clarity. So it'd be good to get your thoughts. So, like, what do you think going through that process and now being in um, a group that I, I guess looks for businesses that you can invest in? Like, what would you say is the most valuable part of a recruitment business that an investor looks at? It's profit, stone cold profit. They look at sales growth and they look at profit. Is the business on an upward trajectory? If it is, great. What numbers is it doing on the bottom line? Then they look at secondary factors. Does it address a market weakness in our brand, uh, in our service line? Does it address a market weakness in the market? Does it have a great brand in itself? Does it have great people? And it must do because it's on an upward trajectory. What's the sort of leadership like? And does it integrate with our own brand and offering? in terms of culture, culture fit, things like that. But Stone, but they won't look at you first and foremost. You can have the best brand in the world, the most amazing known brand, brilliant outgoing staff, all of that amazing stuff. But if you're not putting it on the bottom line, they ain't interested. Mm. Did the sale meet your expectations? It met my expectations in terms of we wanted to do it for strategic reasons. So it met my expectations and it took us from one level to a completely different level. In terms of, uh, and I, I, I personally, when I learned a, a load, did it meet my expectations in terms of the downsides that come with selling your own business? Because ultimately what comes with that is that that lack of you have the final set. You're now part of a team and leadership. 
I think it's very difficult to ever say that it's better to go and compromise your own final say than having your final say, if that makes sense. Like, I'd much rather be able to make that decision myself. Um, and I think most entrepreneurs are going to be built that way. That's why they did it in mm. the first place. They like they, they like the risk element and they like to have the final say element as well. Because, mm. like, how I know I asked you this, like, when we just spoke and stuff, but, like, you knew 2008 from that Shisha Lounge, like, we're going to build a business to sell. So, like, how... Oh, yeah. I know you're still involved. Like, how did I actually feel? Like, how did you feel about you? Like, how did you feel? It's, it's, it's a really interesting thing. So the day that we signed, a lot of people um, usually feel really weird about it because they are parting with a piece of their soul effectively. Yeah. You know, you built this thing. It was your intention. But because we were so laser focused and going, we're going to do this from day one. Whereas it was just a natural conclusion. So for me personally, it was a sense of fulfillment, a sense of achievement. And I, it didn't feel like, oh, my God, this is an emotional thing. It was very, mm. no, you've, you set a target, you hit the target. Uh, yeah. and, and I think that the camps of people out there that will sell their businesses will fall into one of those two camps. Some will feel like, oh, my God this is such an emotional wrench and I totally understand that. And others will feel like tick that box. What's the next thing for me? What's, what's next? the next yeah. target? Yeah. So what, what I think people would be interested in for is, so you mentioned profit, stone cold profit. That's what you need to look at for your business to be seen as really valuable or more valuable than other businesses. But I think some people be interested in the, the secondary parts, right? And I know we understand that the first mm -hmm. part is more important. So what did, what did your, you mentioned people, right? So what, I think what people would be interested in is like, what did Digital Guru's leadership team look like? Or like, what was the structure? So obviously you were yeah. just focusing on the deal, but like, what was the actual structure of the business? And what did that look like in terms of the people leadership and where they were when you was like, yeah, pretty much there or then, yeah, being considered yeah. as a really valuable business? Hisham, you said something really interesting and important there. The profit is important and the most important thing that companies look at. But you don't get that profit without all those secondary things. You do not get yeah. that profit without a world-class culture. You do not get that profit without world-class people. You do not get that profit without a world-class brand. And you do not get that profit without servicing your customers, both candidates and, uh, and clients, really, really well consistently over the years. That's really important for every business out there to hear the one thing that i would encourage you all to take away from this is obsess about the process the results take care of themselves obsess about the process you know if you do not look after your candidates if you do not service your customers needs the profit's not going to be there if you do not look after your staff if you do not create a culture where they want to all work together for the for the same goal the profit's not going to come it's just not going to come so that's the thing that mm. i would really emphasize in terms of how we structured the business we were very bottom-up culture, and, and I'm a big fan of bottom-up cultures. I'm not saying that top-down culture isn't right, but I was a big fan of bottom-up. We gave a lot of creative freedom to our um, management team, so they had a lot of freedom. Our Dubai office was run um, with some sort of say back to base camp. Like we all had the same brands, but we'd adapt things for localization. So. How much basics do you pay compared to UK? How much commission do you pay? Australia was very much the same thing. We, we had some 
central themes that were running throughout all the businesses, but the localized leaders also encouraged us to go, this is the spoke for us, and we, we ran it that way. Our managers had freedom. I really wanted my managers to be able to hire and fire as they saw fit, and usually hire, right, to make those mistakes to learn. For me, it was important that they developed that themselves, that they were able to learn and develop and grow. And that was a real key part to our success. Um, so we had a really flat structure. We had a bottom up culture. It wasn't very centralized. It wasn't very controlled. And that was uh, part of our success. But there were key themes that would run throughout the business. Minimum standards in terms of expectations, minimum standards in terms of activity, how many jobs you have to get on, how many uh, interviews you have to get. KPIs are really, really important, but they've got to be important to serve the uh, the process has to be right to get the outcome. So it wasn't like you've got to make 20 million phone calls today. Well, if you had a certain amount of jobs on already, your focus was probably more on getting candidates, you know, to be able to source that. Or if you had a world-class candidate, your job was to go and market that candidate out to customers that needed that, that skill set. It, it wasn't prescriptive. It was what you particularly needed for your desk at that particular time in order to get mm. the outcome that you wanted. But the outcomes are all the same. You know, if you were at a certain level, we expect this outcome from you. This is the breakdowns that you need to do in order to get that outcome. Yeah. So just as we come to the end here, I've got there's just um, I've got five sort of quick fire questions that I definitely want to uh, ask you. But okay. so we took. I think a lot of a lot of it always comes up in a conversation. Oh, I want to grow my headcount. I want to hire more people, right? And I think you're touching on it here. But like, what would you say? you have done as a business and I think you were just talking about it like let's just talk a bit about retention of staff right I think everyone always talks about need new hires need new people great if we could get this 100 headcount like what you're talking about bottom-up culture which clearly contributes to it probably but like where, where, where do you think had the most impact on retaining your best staff and, and creating more of those role models and digital gurus and, and those success stories that continue to cultivate that bottom-up culture the key to retaining staff was to have a common goal um, and for everyone to be facing in the same direction and moving in the same direction. That was really, really important in terms of retention. And I would say retention is more important than attraction if it's the right people that you're retaining. In terms of um, retaining and attracting, you've got to have a really forward-looking goal. The goal has got to be ambitious. It's got to be hard. People like that. People want to be part of a journey that's big, ambitious, slightly dangerous. They want to be part of something that's going to be like, well, guys, we're going for this. We want to be part of a journey. We want you to be part of a journey. And that's what I mean by that collective culture. If everyone is in it together, facing in the same direction, pushing together, that is so powerful as a force. So, so powerful. And the other thing that you have to infuse that with is fun. You know, like we're in a really challenging year this year. But recruitment is that one industry where you've got to be able to enjoy it. It's hard. The job is hard. You've got to be able to have a laugh. And if you can have a laugh together, it's so powerful. So, so powerful. I mean, to this day, some of, some of the guys who have moved on, some are still there, will come up with instances where we'd had a rough week, right? We missed our numbers for whatever reason or whatever. And somebody would leave from the front and go, right, I'm just going to stop work today. We're going to go out on an extra long lunch. We're just going to commiserate together. We're going to 
just get back on it and then we'll come back and we'll crack on again. Little things like that, that were entrepreneurial, that were different, that everyone was in it together made a massive difference. Mm. So that's a huge part of success for me. And I think, and I think that's the interesting thing, right? Because I think if you think of a typical small business, it's probably things like that that they haven't spent time on. If you think about it, like that, maybe they might not, they might not have really clearly communicated their values, or they may not know, be really clear on their their purpose. And I, if I think of the recruitment business environment I was in, there, there's twelve of us, and there wasn't a common goal; it was more of an individual goal. We we were all bought in, and we were a team. But actually, we didn't know what the common goal was. And sometimes I yeah. think, as a small business, because you're worrying about well, you've got to get cash in the bank and you've got to crack on, right? So I guess just, I think a lot of people go, yeah, I get that. But like, how how can, I know you just got to start, right? But what, how can you start that process and start communicating that common goal? Should you, if I'm listening to this now, I'm like, you know what, actually we don't have a common goal. Like, do we need to, do they need to pull everyone together and be like, right, what, why are we doing this? Like what, yeah, what's it, in this? Price? That, like, that's how, one way of doing it. That is one way of doing it. What is the purpose? Why are we all here? What is mm. the common goal that we're trying to And achieve? has that got to be bigger than just numbers? Is it got to be, do you know what I mean? Like, what? what is this? Who's motivated by numbers? No one. Yeah. No one is motivated by numbers. Let me tell you that straight. People are motivated by a goal, by a mission. We were really transparent that we want to grow this business to sell it, but we're going to have a laugh doing it. That was ours. That was our bespoke thing. So we were absolutely comfortable to do that. Somebody's out there right now going, right, we haven't got a common goal. Speak to the staff. What do we want our common goal to be? And I like get some advice from them. They'll tell you what they what, what they think it should be. And if you're in a small enough business, you can design a common goal together, mm. you know. And if you're in a sort of larger business, get your management team, get them to speak to their staff and go right. Come with some key themes. Let's sit down together. Let's brainstorm. Let's let's have what are we working towards? And if that yeah. thing is not really, if it's just numbers. He's motivated by numbers. I'm sorry, but not not. Yeah, really it's it's what comes with the numbers. That's that's the thing, isn't it? That's it's that. It's like it's the okay, why. Yeah. Answer the why. Yeah. Why, why yeah. are we doing this? Nobody wakes up in the morning going right. I'm doing this because I want to make. Uh, I want to hit my 10 grand target or my 20 grand target this month. It's what you're going to get with that 10 grand target correct. and what it's going to do. What does yeah. that bring? So, what is it yeah. important for me? And over and above that, what is it? Why is it important for the business? And if you can really get everyone tuned into what's important for the business as in the business and the individual goals align. So powerful. Mm. I've got five questions for you. Let's go. If you could change the industry, what would you improve? I would make it into more of a, uh, we culture than a me culture. What I think the industry gets wrong is that we overemphasize the individual rather than the team and what that leads to is that a few people end up winning rather than the majority so i would fully change the way that the industry um awards success Mm. i would i would democratize it far more what what book have you read that's had the most or biggest impact on you um the book that i've read is principles by ray dalio uh, which sets out really clear goals and life principles that he set that were able to guide him when he was uncertain. And I just copied it and I started doing the same in different circumstances. And it was fantastic. Yeah. If you, if you don't know who Ray Dalio is, you, you, you need to check him out. Is I mean, the stuff that he's come out and now said and just shared everything he's learned and 
yeah, you you need to know who Ray Dalio is, <laughs> quite yeah, frankly. And, and it's, it's a great it's a it's a great book. Um, so if you could write a LinkedIn post that could be seen by every single recruitment consultant across the world, what would you want it to say? God, that's a that's a challenging one. I would want it to. Um, I'd want it to be positive. So I'm not going to be specific because that's too much of a challenging question to answer, but I'd want it to be positive. I'd want it to be forward looking. So focusing on the future and I'd want it to um, reflect something like a reflection of how appreciative people uh, that are in my position are of what those people do. That Mm. job is phenomenally hard. It's thankless a lot of the times. And I would just be like, do you know what? You guys are amazing. Thankful for working with people like that. Let's keep cracking on at this and let's keep being successful. So it'd be on those themes. Yeah, I like it. Interesting on this one. What what did you spend your first biggest commission paycheck on? Uh God, probably on a night out, if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> or like biggest, or like the first, the first time that you probably paid yourself out of the business, I guess, might be a bit different for you. But or I think it's always interesting. Do you know what? I'll, I'll answer that slightly differently. What did I spend my first commission check that I really enjoyed spending that money on? Right, that wasn't nice. practical. Uh, I come from a really working class background. My dad's a taxi driver, and he single handedly raised me and my brothers. And did all of that stuff. So the thing that I enjoyed buying the most with my big commission check was I bought him the fanciest car that I could find that he wanted. And the smile on his face, he didn't say a word, was in priceless. That was that Amazing. was yeah, it was priceless. That was what that's I'm what it's about. Last one. I and I'll slightly change this for you, but I guess what 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 is the ultimate goal for your career, Farik? To work with two things, meaningful work, meaningful people. I want to work with people that um, I can learn off, that I love working with, that are hungry, ambitious, and want to want to achieve, and meaningful work in terms of that we're making a difference to people's lives. So those two things are my key drivers, meaningful work, meaningful people, combine them together, job done. Love it. For it, it's been an absolute pleasure. Excited to see what, what's next. Thanks, Tisha. Well done on making it to the very end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I've done my very best to try and level up this podcast that will hopefully mean that you can take even more learnings from these conversations and apply it to your own recruitment career. Like always, if there are any particular topics that you would love me to cover with future guests, then please get in touch with me. The best place to reach me is on LinkedIn. Send me a message. What would you love me to cover with future guests? And if you have enjoyed the podcast, then it would be amazing if you could leave a honest review in your favorite podcast streaming platform. That will simply mean that we're able to reach more people with this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and don't forget to subscribe completely free on your favorite podcast streaming platforms and we'll be back next week with a new episode of the Recruitment Mentors Podcast.